0: For those of you who remain, I want to invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 1, and I think now as we celebrate the fourth Sunday of Advent, Christmas is coming, and where all of us are just kind of thinking about gifts, uh, some of you still need to go do some gift shopping, and you know this. I, I'm sorry to have brought that up. Now you have anxiety, and I apologize. Uh, but, but one of the things that I think is important for, for us to repeat is, is the reminder that if you're sitting here and you don't own a copy of God's Word, we want you to have a gift, the gift of a Bible. Uh, God's Word is living and active. It's powerful. Okay? Okay. And so we have received freely, and so freely we want to give. If, if you're here and you don't have a copy of God's Word, please look at the back of the pew in front of you and take a Bible. All right? Or if there's someone that's near to you that doesn't have one, and you know that, that they would read it, by all means, take it and give it to them. We, we, we can put more in the pews. All right? So God's Word should be distributed as freely and as widely as possible So please, avail yourself of it if you don't own a copy for yourself. Now, today, our scripture for our sermon comes uh, in Zechariah's song as he's addressing his newborn son, John the Baptist. Uh, So we'll look at Luke chapter 1. Did I say Luke 2 earlier? I meant Luke 1. Luke 1, verses 76 through 79 Luke, the associate of the apostles, after having done scrupulous research, writes the following, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people, In the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sun shall visit us, the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Brothers and sisters, this is God's word to us. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for not only having delivered it to your people, but for having preserved it. And though this world and the forces of the prince of the power of the air have sought to destroy it, Nonetheless, you have caused it to be proliferated around the globe, and we praise you for this. Thank you for granting that we should be stewards of your word and grant that we would be found faithful. Lord, comfort our hearts. We are anxious about many things. Grant that we would sit at your feet and be still and know that you are God. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. All right, brothers and sisters. So this Advent season, as you know, we have been looking at ways. This is the fourth way. But we've been looking at ways in which the coming of Jesus provide a basis or a foundation for us to hope. We talked about how Uh, The biblical concept of hope is a little more nuanced than is the modern vernacular usage of hope. How in modern vernacular speech, when we say hope, we just kind of mean I wish it happens or I'd like it to happen or something. Uh, But in biblical use, to hope is to have an expectation of something for some reason. So we have a rational basis for why we expect something to happen. And so, the word hope is used many, many times in both the Old and New Testament. 83 in the New, and I believe it's the same number in the Old. We are people to be characterized by hope. It is one of the three great virtues of the Christian faith. Hope. Are you a hopeful person? In the midst of all the storms, struggles, and strife of life, are you characterized by hope? Or does it seem remarkably foreign to your own experience? As you evaluate how you look at the situations you're in, when I speak of being characterized by hope, Does that sound like I'm talking about someone else? And if it is, I'm not here to bash you over the head and say, bad you. I'm here to say, the good news for you is that God wants you to be hopeful. And you can be. And so this series has been about providing you reasons why you can be hopeful so if you look back at the first week of our series we talked about the genealogy of Jesus and how Luke traces it all the way back to Adam and most of the people in his genealogy are a bunch of people who are utterly and completely insignificant from a worldly perspective but in that we learn that the people in this world that the world itself would say are irrelevant and are are just extra uh, irrelevant extras, superfluous on the stage and play of existence, nonetheless, have a vital role in the story that God is crafting. And we saw that the Word of God teaches that you are a living stone being built into the building that Christ is building, the church. The work is in process. You are a part of it. Your life matters. Your experiences, your story, the things that have happened to you, the things you have done, both good and ill, your story matters. It's been said... With God, there are no little people. That's another way of putting it. You are not a superfluous extra on the stage. You and your story, your life, matter. So, the God of all possible worlds has created a world with you in it. And your story matters. So stand in awe and praise and have hope that the mundane life you think you have, that the struggles and the nonstop spinning of wheels or just waiting to get going or whatever it is, it matters and it has meaning. So that was the first week. The second week was a reminder that his promises will be kept each and every one of them that he was faithful to send his son but that was simply the latest in a long line of God keeping his word and and the passage we focused on from Joshua underscored and stressed that each and every one, not one word of his promises failed. Not one word. And so, in a world in which we are kind of jaded and cynical and suspicious, and we're used to people overhyping, overselling, and so we can be tempted to think that some of God's promises are given to us with hyperbolic overstatement or something, not one word of his promises will fail. And so we can hope, because he has given us many and wondrous promises indeed. That was the second week. Then the third week, last week, we looked at the coming of Christ in terms of what his name means for his mission with a seeking to address That ultra common conundrum and question that Christians face, which is the question of, Am I saved? And how Jesus came and his name was assigned to him precisely because his mission was to save his people from their sins. And we looked at that in three parts His people, what does that mean? To save, what does that mean? From their sins, and what does that mean? We looked at that all last week, but the bottom line is we like to focus on the subjective aspect of have we rightly believed? Do I believe hard enough, sincere enough? But our focus ought to be on the objective. Was Christ and his ministry and his life and his death Sufficient. Yes or no? So that when Jesus said it is finished, is it finished? And so we can have hope that we really are saved. Regardless of what the voices in your head tell you. And this week, the fourth and final Sunday of Advent we're going to focus on the fact that the coming of Christ gives us the basis by which we can have that most sublime of confidences namely that truly everything will turn out okay everything will turn out okay And that that can sound trite, I mean, in a world in which, I mean, you know, Putin is at the very gates, at the border of the Ukraine. Is there going to be a war? Jobs are being lost every day. People are dying of disease every day. The struggles of relationships are real and present. And it it sounds awfully churchy to say it's going to be okay when you're looking at a death sentence of a diagnosis or when you're staring unemployment and bankruptcy in the face. It can seem awfully churchy awfully cliche, awfully trite. But what I love about Christmas is regardless of what church culture may have done to various things in 2,000 years of church history, nonetheless, at its core, what we see in Christmas is not the trivialization of life's problems. You see the gritty, real interaction of God and his purposes with the gritty brutal realities of life our problems are not trivialized away they are in fact legitimized as real and addressed as significant but it's in the addressing and it's in the dealing that we see in fact the victory and so the Christian response to the troubles and trials of life is not to say it's no big deal it is a big deal it cost the son of God his life but rather instead of saying it's no big deal it's to say he has conquered even here and he is making all things new and in making all things new, that means that truly it will indeed turn out okay. Remember that we are not living for this life only. In addition to the great hall of faith in Hebrews, in which in which the author goes down, and I mean it, it's awesome how he just goes down. He st- he starts with, with Abraham. I mean, he just goes down and all these people, all of these, he says, died without having obtained it. And what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15, that most spectacular of chapters in which he explores and unpacks the resurrection of Christ in, 15, in 1 Corinthians 15 19? He reminds us that if we're trusting in Christ for this life only, we are what? To be pitied more than all people. In this life only, we are not trusting. We are trusting for this life and the life to come. So remember that your troubles, your trials are not to be viewed from the vantage point of this life only. This is why your living and your dying have meaning and value. Because you go on, you continue after your body expires into the next life, and so it all has meaning. Now, specifically, mankind needs and seeks For peace. Ever since our first parents fell, you can see in Genesis chapter 3 the the instant breakdown of relationships. How the relationship between husband and wife is tarnished, where they're trying to, he specifically, Adam, throws his wife under the bus. And the relationship with God is clearly and visibly separated. And we roll into the next chapter and we have the first murder. Where brother kills brother and so violence then enters the world in that way. And bloodshed mounts until the earth is covered and full of blood. But mankind needs peace so the Hebrew word is, was created, the Hebrew word shalom, which carries with it the usual connotations of, the usual denotations of the lack of conflict, but it also connotes the presence of blessing. It's not just that we're in the Cold War not shooting each other, it's that there's actual positive relationship, mutual beneficence, and blessing and prosperity. It's the good life all around. And, brothers and sisters, from the beginning, understand that God promises His people peace. That's shalom. And that shalom is possible precisely because, as we have said earlier, who he is and what he's doing in the world. And so even beginning as far back as the Aaronic blessing of number six, what is the blessing that God tells Aaron to put upon the people? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance to you and what? Give you peace. But yet peace seems so far away, doesn't it? And so throughout the Old Testament, the prophets specifically point to the one who will come and bring God's peace. We heard it today. Chuck reminded us. What will he be called? Wonderful Counselor. Y'all want to sing it? (laughs) Name shall be called Wonderful Counselor Almighty God, the Lasting Father, the Peace, peace. Isaiah, multiple times. Peace, 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 peace. The prophets go on to say he not only will bring peace, he will be their peace. Then, of course, we get to today's passage. Where the sunlight will rise, the sunshine, the Son of God is coming. And he will guide his people into the way of peace. And then once he comes, as we also read today, the announcement of the angels. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace. Our Lord comes that we might have peace did you know God's pronouncement of peace on his people is in literally every single one of the New Testament books every single one of all 27 every single book in the New Testament pronounces God's peace upon you that is given to you brothers and sisters as a gift procured by Jesus When he died on the cross, remember from last week, when it says he came to save, that presupposes the problems and everything that stands between you and safety, he addresses those problems. And one of the problems you have is you have no peace. And he comes to solve that problem. And so he gives us peace. Now, what kind of peace does he give to us? Or in what way does he give us peace? Well, first of all, he gives us peace with God. Romans 5.1 Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. The symptom of all other ills is that, sorry, the root of all other ills is that we are not at peace with God. When I was a chaplain and I, I was practically a full-time counselor, and I would counsel people multiple times a day, and like in like formal, almost quasi more like a social worker, I guess, a religious social worker. And, and they would tell their problems, and I could say, Look, I will help you address this issue. But understand it is simply the symptom of something greater. The real problem here is you are alienated from your creator. And every other problem we have flows from that. So Jesus came to give us peace with God. That is why we are able to face any circumstance, any trial without losing hope because we are on good terms with the one who is in control of it all. And we trust and understand that even when the bad tidings come, they come to us through the hand of a good, wise, and loving Father who is working all things to his glory and our good. But we don't just have peace with God, as sublime as that is. He comes to give what we might call inner peace. Doesn't he tell us this multiple times? And this is the one that addresses our anxieties. He says in John 14, My peace I give to you, but not as the world gives In this world, you will have trouble. But what? Take heart, for I have overcome the world. And he sends his Holy Spirit to indwell us, to comfort us, to encourage us. This peace that we have enables us to bear through any circumstance because we know that we are not abandoned. Third, we can actually have real peace with each other, believe it or not. We can live at peace with each other, as strange as that might sound. We are told in Ephesians 2, Paul, the apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, drawing upon what is said in the prophets. He's talking about how Christ has torn down the wall of division between Jew and Gentile, clean and unclean. He's made the two into one. And what's the thing? He himself is our peace in 2.14, Ephesians 2.14. So we can actually live at peace with each other as brothers and sisters in the household of God. Now, that peace in this life is not going to be perfect because we're sinners and we're being progressively sanctified. But we can be characterized by a basic forbearance, deference, and graciousness. Assuming the best of each other's motives, not being easily offended, being quick to forgive, we can live at peace with each other, right? Yeah. And in a world of chaos, where everybody's at each other's throats and, and friendships and alliances seem, seem no more than like politically expedient. Uh, what a safe harbor to have a place where you can be at peace with everybody. And finally this is the biggie that 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 seems like pie in the sky to some but believe it or not we can look forward to the day when there really really is actually is world peace i don't mean this in some nonsensical politically uh, pc nonsense isn't that prophet isn't that isn't that promise given to us throughout the scriptures that the day is coming when they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks and no more it says it says no more will the nations learn war. It's from Isaiah 2. That day is coming. Is it here right this minute? No. But it's coming. And so, based upon the fact that God's peace is promised, God's peace has been given, and God's peace continues to be outpoured, we can then, as we sit in the midst of our troubles, trials, and tribulations, reflect on God's goodness, on his sovereignty, and say, you know what? It really will turn out okay. I'm reminded of the poem that's now a song, but uh, Henry Longfellow wrote the, the the poem "Christmas Bells." He wrote it during the Civil War. Uh, many of you many of you know that, and um, and I love his poem, and I, I lo- really like the song because. It looks at, it takes first what, what the ideal is, and then it faces the gritty reala- reality of the daily fact of life. But then it pulls back based upon God's promise, and it concludes. So I, I want to read this to you. It's brief. Uh, but Christmas Bell, so remember, he, he wrote this in the context of the U.S. Civil War. So about 150 years ago, war was, uh, was on this continent. I apologize. This is one of the downsides they have used. Okay, so I'm going to start in the third stanza, the part where he faces because I did not copy and paste properly. <laughs> that's my, that's my pro- glitch. Okay, I didn't copy and paste properly, so I'm going to not start with the ideal. I'm going to start with the gritty reality, because that's where... (laughs) Anyway, he wrote... So this is like the third stanza. Then from each black, accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south. And with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, this is it right here, and in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And man, I love that he said that. It mocks it. Doesn't it seem like that's what life is like, that it mocks the idea of peace? Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. That's a beautiful poem. And it's true that really, truly, in the end, everything will be okay. So take the troubles and trials of life, not as trivial, but as less than ultimate. Because they really are passing away. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much for this word. Grant that we would have hope in the midst of trouble, knowing that things will turn out okay because you promise peace and your Son brings peace. And as we remember, your sovereignty ensures that all your plans and purposes will indeed come to pass. So grant, O Lord, that we would reflect, remember, and draw upon the hope that is ours in Christ, And that we indeed would be characterized by trusting in you for our peace. For Christ's sake we pray this. Amen.